Hi there, House Culture listener. If you enjoy this episode or have enjoyed listening to other episodes in our series, please support and donate to us through the Acast Supporter feature. All donations will help us create the content that you love listening to. You can decide how much you give and there is no regular commitment. So it could be a one-off and every now and then or once every time you listen. It's really up to you. Click on the supporter link in the episode description and with Google or Apple Pay, it will take you less than 30 seconds to make your contribution. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, I'm Danny Rampling and you're listening to the House Culture Podcast. House Culture. Hello everybody and welcome to another episode of the House Culture Podcast hosted by me, the Managing Editor at House Culture, Matt Rouse. As ever, I hope you're all managing to stay safe and sane with things changing back and forth so rapidly at the moment. I hope we can cure some of that frustration you might be having by delivering some good vibes from the club directly into your lockdown life at home. If you're not familiar with house culture and what we stand for, we are a collective of house music fans who have come together through our mutual love of the beat to celebrate the spirit of house music. Instagram is our home at housecultureNet. That's where you can get up close and personal with us and like-minded individuals from across the world. And if you haven't been listening to our podcast series, where have you been? This second season has been our biggest yet, featuring interviews with legends such as Fatboy Slim, Tall Paul, Ashley Beadle, and the Ibethan icon and creative director at Pike's Hotel, Dawn Hindle. And now I'm absolutely thrilled to be able to say that this episode is another addition to that pantheon of legends as I caught up with one of the founding fathers of the house music scene, Danny Rampling. It's one of the first ones we've recorded during lockdown, so we have a lot to talk about, including his first impressions of Ibiza on that fateful trip back in 1987. It was a complete revelation the way Alfredo weaved many textures of music together from soul funk, boogie, to hip-hop, to jazz, to Latin, to techno, to house, disco. Just such a, uh, an eclectic mix of music which we termed Balearic Beats. I returned and created a club called Shum. The impact that his club night Shum had on the party goers of that era. It was also new, also fresh. It brought so many different people together. We created unity. There was a collective consciousness that swept through the UK and across the world for that matter. 
how his passion for music still burns inside him. I'm immensely grateful that 30 odd years I'm here is still appreciated and still doing what I love and that's not to be taken for granted for one minute because when it is taken away and I stepped away for two years you never know what it's what you've got until it's gone kind of that old saying that is so true. And the importance of us all gathering as one on the dance floor. We all need to dance. It's important to dance to release those positive, good endorphins. It's a primal need of most human beings, whatever age you are, to dance. So, are you ready? Get yourself set for a sermon from one of the house music gods. This is Danny Rampling. House culture. Hi Danny, thanks for finding the time to sit down with us amongst all of the COVID campaigning you've been doing. It's massively appreciated. You are one of the originators of the house music scene in the UK that played a huge part in getting it to where it is today. Uh, we always want to start at the beginning of that journey and find out, can you talk to us about when you first discovered music growing up and how did you understand the feelings that it gave you? Uh, first and foremost, um, welcome. Um, how did I first fall in love with music and um, my earliest musical memories? Um, I fell in love with music through the radio. My mother played uh, the radio, uh, had the radio on, should I say, um, in the house um, uh, all throughout the day. So that's where my music journey began, um, being uh, fascinated how radio broadcast music and um, speech over the airwaves, um, which became an obsession and fascination with radio. What was the type of music that was being played and what stations were being listened to? Well, pop music. Um, I was a kid, so (laughs) seven, eight years old, um, BBC Radio 1. And um, that seemed to be the main station at the time, the BBC, really. There wasn't the wealth of stations there is now. So, uh, yeah, nevertheless, um, that that really was where the passion for music began and also collecting records at a very young age from listening to the radio I then started collecting uh, music um, very early on and I'd get record tokens and spend at Christmas and birthdays and spend those record tokens on seven inch singles and um, built up a collection so I wanted to be a DJ very early on in my life listening to radio and collecting music yeah at, um, I didn't know how when and where um, but that seed was planted I really wanted to be on the radio and many years later I did become a (laughs) leading DJ on BBC Radio 1 on a primetime show there. I stayed there for over seven years on a Saturday night with the Love Groove Dance Party. So you had kind of a great record collection. Um, Were you like, from other DJs that we've interviewed, they'd obviously be collectors and they would have this collection. They would be the go-to guy for like turn up at the party with their records was that what you were doing from a young age as well or was it all just kind of playing yeah not from a very young age um i just collected all sorts of music uh, the first music i heard was rock and roll tamla motown pop music um mm. glam rock all those things um you know it's a long while ago uh, that's <laughs> playing at parties uh, took a long time to achieve that and that was into my 20s yep. uh, that didn't happen in my t- well it did happen in my teen teenagers but you know what we know and love today the landscape was very very different back then there wasn't the opportunities there wasn't the breaks and there wasn't the scene like we have today mm. um so your kind of first teenage experience is going out to 
to nightclubs and things like that. What what kind of music were you into during that period? In the seventies, disco was that was that was the sound, disco reggae. Um, but I used to uh, attempt to get into a um, nightclub at about fifteen years old. I think I only got in there once or twice, probably when the doorman was in a better mood and was focused on something else. But that was in um, a Crystal Palace hotel and there used to be a uh, DJ there that used to play American imports and mm-hmm. that really kind of um, alongside the radio with DJs like Greg Edwards and Robbie Vincent who were playing that style of music on the radio that I used to listen to mm-hmm. and David Rodigan. Yeah. And did you kind of see these guys behind the decks or whatever, like performing and, you know, bringing this music to the masses? Was that an inspiration then? Or like you say, did it come later on? Yeah, it was an inspiration to go out and buy music in uh, American import music. Um, I'd listen to their radio shows like many kids and then go out and buy that music. But half the time that the music was really exclusive. Mm-hmm. They get it from producers in New York, uh, which is exactly what I did some years later. And um, you'd have to wait. And uh, the search for an import um, single or album sometimes would take a bit of time. But it was all part of the thrill and the chase of (laughs) finding that particular piece of music. And then all of a sudden, the record store would be full of a a particular American import record. Then it gets signed to a UK label. So it was a great time, particularly for record shops and on the radio. Uh, the, the choice of uh, dance music on the radio was very, very limited back then. Now there's everything, internet, DAB. The choice is so extensive and broad right now in the present. Yeah, and so how are you discovering, you know, obviously it's import stuff. It's really obviously no Shazam or anything back then. How are you discovering what these tracks were called? Were you going to record shops and say, singing a bit of the vocal hook or taking a pad and a pen out and badgering the DJs? How, how was that discovery happening? Of course, there was a bit of train spotting involved mm. as there is with everyone <laughs> who's a, a, a vinyl collector or a, a, a music collector. So yeah, at the club, uh, I'd ask what records were and um, radio was the main source uh, really at that time to hear new music and then make notes of it and then go and uh, buy certain records in, in the stores in, in London in Groove Records at one particular record store which was a great record store yeah. in Soho so yeah it was um, that was it, radio and club yes so yeah standing there in one Zanarak with a notepad and pen <laughs> taking down the details but actually I'm the world's worst train spotter I don't I really, I, I'm more visual, and um, the thing is with you know kind of labels, catalogue numbers. Some people are very meticulous and um, detailed in their in their knowledge of certain labels, and they know the catalogue number, the release date, and the producer, the engineer, um, the backing singers, the the, the vocalist, all these things combined. Um, but they're more analytical, and I'm one of the visual crowd of record buyers. And who, you know, record sleeves, uh, you know what that was immediately, particularly when you're in a dark club and mm. looking at uh, vinyl when when I was playing vinyl and putting fluorescent stickers on the, the covers uh, to uh, identify what they were in the dark. <laughs> Yeah, I totally get that. I've no memory for names or anything like that. It's more around like what the label looked like or what the picture on the sleeve looked like to kind of try and dig those records out. Um, I mean, you mentioned there like fluorescent labels and things like that on on the sleeves. Was is that how you kind of catalogued like different styles and like how much energy tracks had, or was it just a? I'll get one for you. Hold on. <laughs> 
I just found this recently. You'll find this amusing. It's covered up and it's Italian rare record. It took me a year to find it. So yes, this took one year to find for me. <laughs> <laughs> that must have hacked a few people off who were poking their head over the DJ booth. I can't remember what this track is actually called. <laughs> I can't even remember what it's called. Uh, it could be Alexandra Robotnik, I have a feeling. It looks like that label. Mm. Yeah, I used to go to Italy and buy records and um, broke a lot of those um, those records. I'd spend much time and money hunting through warehouses and um, Italian record stores and then bring back the tracks and play them at Shoom and cover them up. And that really was a, a kind of parallel what was going on with the Northern Soul scene, which I, wa mm. I wasn't... Uh, part of the Northern Soul DJ circuit, and I hadn't been to the Wigan Casino or any of those clubs. But um, I guess I'd read about it somewhere and decided to cover them up. But what that did, it created this uh, this um, hunger for particular tracks and people would be clambering to find out what they were. And it, and then after a couple of months, I'd take the stickers off um, and people, you know, people would be guessing. There was no Shazam then. Mm. Um, so the odd person would know what the track was. And then that would um, open up a, a whole um, gateway to people being able to get the track. And the uh, record importers would find out what those tracks were and then import them from Italy. <laughs> So it was great, but it was all part of the fun of it. It was it was it was a thrill to uh, chase pieces of music, which still goes on today yeah. with limited vinyl, mm -hmm. um, which is healthy. It's a great thing. That scarcity of music and um, the unknown, um, yeah. and and chase, chasing a piece of music. Uh, some be, you know there are some tracks that take years to find, um, and then those gold nuggets are. Or found, or um, purchased, and uh, treasured. Yeah. It, it, I think you know that that approach. It, it really made people value music more as well. Mm -hmm. um, now I think you know digitally, a lot of music is so transient and so turn the page after a couple of plays, and it's on to the next track. Yeah. Whereas back then, there was a lot more longevity with uh, with music and um, breaking records through that that approach. Yeah, totally. And you know. It's um, any bit of vinyl or uh, that you would be purchasing. Like you say, you'd either be going to Italy to buy it or you'd be in a record shop and you would have that specificity of memory of buying that one record. I was in that record shop and I was talking to this guy and uh, it's all about that experience and that's kind of been lost a little bit in the digital experience, like you say. Yeah, unfortunately it has, but um, there are there are some great record stores that have um, re-emerged in recent times. And um, the sales of vinyl are increasing and the renaissance of uh, vinyl is increasing year on year. So there is a, a shift uh, towards um, vinyl collectors yeah. and um, the, the, the passion for vinyl, particularly with the limited copies of productions that are solely exclusive to vinyl. And Andrew Weddle was a big purveyor mm. of uh, vinyl only and um, he did, uh, had his own artwork that would accompany the vinyl collections. Um, he's sadly missed. He was a great friend. Yeah. Justin Robertson does uh, that also. And a lot of producers do now. So just pressing 250, 500 copies, and that's it of that particular track, which creates a rare groove, which mm -hmm. Norman Jay was the figurehead in that um, scene and movement. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and to have it on vinyl now is seen as, uh, you know, the ultimate. You are up there in terms of the, the DJ League to have something on vinyl now rather than just like just downloading it and getting a copy of it. It might be the same thing, but if you've got the physical copy of it, that's seen as real currency. And, uh, Sven Vash, uh, he's, you know, kind of a, the leading DJ in Germany, um, a legend. He still plays vinyl only sets. That's his, that's his approach. He hasn't gone down the digital route. Mm. But I find also, I, what I do find frustrating is some of those vinyl tracks, you know, you want them. And um, I don't play vinyl out in clubs anymore. So, and you can't find them digitally. So it's quite frustrating <laughs> in that in that respect. Yeah, or you're, you've got it on vinyl, but you just want to extend that little section to give yourself a, a good intro or outro. And actually, no, you've just got, to, just got to be creative with how it was originally pressed. And, you know, those boundaries often create the best kind of creativity i think yeah rather than having all options available to you all the time i mean so you know you're obviously collecting vinyl and i want to kind of lead up to that fateful ibiza trip obviously in 87 um you know had you were you into a scene beforehand um that took you to ibiza or was it just an offhand thing that like that sounds like a good place to go or how did it all kind of come about I mean, it's a lifetime ago, Matt, really. It's so <laughs> long ago. It's so long ago, but the memories are like yesterday. And um, I'll treasure them forevermore, uh, as most people will who were part of that early scene and out there in Ibiza. Um, before Pre-Ibiza, I was into uh, the soul scene, Case the Weekenders, and Nicky Holloway, I was his assistant, um, where I learned a lot about DJing and um, he was a leading London promoter at the time and in the southeast and do he did lots of events lots of warehouse parties and parties at London Zoo and um, the Science Museum and uh, you name it he did a party there Nicky at the time so I learned a lot from Nicky yeah but that was the scene I was on and we'd go to dirt box warehouse parties and um, shake and finger pop um, and um, um the uh, meltdown parties with Jonathan Moore that, and um, Matt Black, who later became Cold Cuts, they used to hold parties on the river, on the south side of the river, when the London development hadn't even began then um, at that point in the 80s. So it was lots of rundown warehouses, and that was an epicentre of warehouse parties down there on the um, south bank in SE1, in Rotherhive and um, so, um uh, those uh, spice warehouses. Mm-hmm. That was a big, a big place to go to warehouse parties at that time. So that was really the, the background before going to a Ibiza. And I, I read um, a feature by Cheryl Garrett in the face. It was only a small feature about um, this DJ Alfredo playing in Amnesia in the open air and after hours club. And that was it really. I, I came back from America where I've been for a year and, um, and it was Paul Okafold's birthday. So we all, took a flight over to Ibiza in August of that year in 87 mm-hmm. and it was a complete revelation uh, you know these um, the way Alfredo uh, weaved uh, um, many textures of music together from uh, soul funk boogie to hip-hop to jazz to latin to techno to house disco um, just such a uh, an eclectic mix of music which we termed Balearic beats uh, particularly the indie stuff that he used to play and industrial sounds as well. So it was a real uh, melting pot of music, but he had his own particular style of, of playing that music and, and making it all work together, uh, which was really impressive. And it inspired us all just the same way as Larry Levan and Frankie Knuckles inspired a generation of DJs in America 
uh, and Ron Hardy at the warehouse in Chicago back then in the um, late 70s and 80s, more so the 80s. Mm. And that's that's really, for me personally, that's where the stage was set. I'd been aspiring to get onto the club circuit. But as I said earlier, it's it really was quite a close shop. Even though I was on Kiss FM, the pirate station at the time, mm. I hadn't found my true identity musically. I was playing independent soul music, hip hop, um, black music, you know, all, all kinds of stuff, prelude and mm. um, garage sounds. But um, it was it was that trip which really solidified everything for my own um, vision of what I wanted to achieve. And it was it, it it just came together there. It was a revelation for all of us. And I returned and created a club called Shoom mm. in a basement in um, Frail Street SE1 in London, which was in a gym. It was a gym during the week. At the weekend, push all the gym equipment behind the banners that we produced. And um, we put our own dance floor in there. And uh, that's where Shoom began. Yes. So in terms of the logistics behind getting that together, had you... So you've been to Ibiza, you've heard Alfredo weave his magical Balearic beat spell. Was it a case of, okay, I've got to come back and get all of these records that I've heard? Or was it a case of, I, I understand the vibe of Amnesia and I want to bring that home and set up Shum? Like, what was the kind of musical policy and the creation behind that? Uh, well, the kind of indie stuff, I wasn't really into the indie music scene. So that was all really, you know, uh, that sound was new to me and I think to the others as well. So all of those kind of records like Front 242 and The Residence and um, all of those tracks were, were out of the kind of industrial sound and uh, and indie music, thrashing dubs. And Alfredo played a lot of records that, we, that totally inspired us. And we came back and found them and started playing them also. Mm. Same as what Larry Levan did at the garage. <laughs> He'd play records and people would go and find the records and then they'd start playing those records as well. So... He was a figurehead, Alfredo, and he was greatly influential to a whole generation of DJs and clubbers. Still a great DJ today. He's a great friend, and he was the, the, the benchmark, really. And I hadn't heard a DJ play like that. You know, I had lots of DJ favourites, but I'd never heard Larry Levan or Frankie or any of the Chicago DJs before I went to Ibiza. So it, it was an eye-opener, um, mm. and that really inspired us greatly. Um, and I, you know, I kind of, I, I, yes, of course, I, you know, I emulated the way he played music. Mm. It gave me um, a, 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 um, an influence into playing music more choppy and mixing it up with all different sounds. So a new sound, the Balearic sound, uh, which is quite misunderstood as well back then, it was was represented, and it became it became a scene. It became it was part of the early acid house scene. Yeah, and so when you set up Shum and those first kind of parties, can you remember? Did you think it was going to grow into the what it what it eventually did? You think people? Did you think this is something that people would still be talking about, you know, thirty years later, or was it just um, I want to have some fun and you know bring this music to to a wider audience? It was an incredible time, and it's hard to describe. It was it was a very very extraordinary time. It was unique. Um, it was also new, also fresh. It brought so many different people together. Um, it created unity. We created unity. It was a collective consciousness um, that swept through the UK and across the world, for that matter, particularly here in Europe. And uh, a scene was born. A movement came out of that. But it was apolitical. It was all about fun. It was all about. We created a, a, a DIY culture. It was a counterculture. 
and it created a lot of opportunity, which is everything that Margaret Thatcher was doing at that time. But then also there was a lot of economic disparity, uh, just as there is in today's uh, society in Britain. And um, we just did our own thing. We did our own thing. It wasn't political. And a lot of careers began, a lot of friendships, lifelong friendships, marriages, kids came out of that scene. Uh, it was it was it was an amazing time for a couple of years. It really did bring everybody together. It just smashed everything down. Every taboo you can think of was just tossed aside, and we were having the time of our lives. We were so carefree and free at the same time. There was such a such a level of freedom. This is before the the the, the big you know kind of money driven raves that that uh, that came out of this. But those kind. That couple of years, it was, you know, even some of those raves, they weren't solely driven by money. It, it became that way later, hmm. but it was just a, it was just a, a life, it was a life changing time for so many people. What are your indelible memories from the Shoom parties over the years? What, um, what kind of stands out to you as the most memorable? tunes or people or nights that you had in there oh if you've got three weeks <laughs> <laughs> oh it's again it to encapsulate that down into you know just one or two um points is quite difficult but mm. it was it was about the energy in the club because it was people from all walks of life and um that was that was the magic of it all it was a small room 300 people you know, and I guess like, you know, the cavern when the Beatles began, there was a there was a feeling going on there. Um, the um, Richmond Hotel where the Rolling Stones began and all of these all of these movements have, you know, kind of core uh, small venues where and punk as well, like the Vortex and the Hundred Club. Well, that's what Shoom was about. Shoom was uh, it was the new punk rock in a sense. It was just, you know, it was just we everyone just got on and did their own thing. But every night was it was it became like a, a religious experience for a lot of people. They would just look for, uh, so much forward to Saturday night, and then Saturday would come, would come along and be filled with anticipation and excitement. We'd get down into that basement and then just let off so much steam and um, just lose themselves in music. The energy in the room in Shoom was always electrifying. It really was a magical energy, and uh, and and that that was a feeling of collective consciousness and people's energy together, and the energy of the room, and the music, and my energy transferring that to the dance floor and reciprocated energy. And I was on fire because I'd foundly. Um, found a crowd and a venue to play my music and um, be appreciated uh, as a DJ playing that music. That was always my dream and my dream had come true and I was on cloud nine. <laughs> and it's kind of during that period as well, I mean, Shum was one of the first ones, but then kind of there were other ones, other parties kind of popping up as well at that time. Did you ever see yourself kind of in competition with them or was it all part of you were all part of one scene kind of supporting each other and, you know, pushing your own sounds? Yeah, it did begin that way. There was, but um, yeah, it certainly did. And, and Shun wasn't competing with any, anybody. We were our own, um, our own crowd of people. Uh, we're all part of the same scene, but, you know, kind of there was there was no competition. We weren't competing against another club. You had Future with Paul Oakenfold, but later became bigger Spectrum, a much bigger club. Mm-hmm. Um, you had uh, Black Market from Rene Gelston at the WAG. You had um, Love at the WAG, um, which followed Black Market. Hedonism was a great warehouse party in um, 
Wembley, uh, very underground uh, warehouse party. You had um, Clink Street, but uh, I mean, there were there were there were a little bit of rivalry with some people, but they clearly didn't get the actual ethos and feeling of the scene. Mm. But it was a minority, really. It yeah. really was. Everyone was just together. It was like you'd you'd see someone in you know kind of baggy clothes or fluoro clothes and smiley t-shirts, and you knew they they were part of your tribe. It had a look the whole scene you know just like the 60s did mm-hmm. with mods and hippies and rockers and uh, punks you know there was an identity there was a, a fashion around it as well so people identified with their fellow tribe members <laughs> and did you um what was it like when you went back out to ibiza i suppose and did you explain to alfredo the the um uh inspiration he'd given you uh, like what how did that happen and were you still continuing to visit Ibiza kind of regularly after Shum had been set it up? It was bloody marvellous. All <laughs> <laughs> um, joking aside, uh, I, in 87, I didn't really, I didn't know Alfredo. Mm. I said hello to him, but I didn't really have a conversation with him. Paul knew him uh, more because Paul was a, a record plugger at, at uh, Rush Release, which was a leading promo company. So Paul um, was more um, close with him initially because I think he'd been servicing, he started servicing vinyl to Alfredo. And then him and Nicky went there on a second visit in 87. But um, everything really took off in about January, February, 88. It really did start to gather massive momentum in that early part of 88 which then became the summer of love so the opening of amnesia that year was incredible it really was and we were all there for that um a lot of the shoom crowd were there um everyone was there it was uh, it, it was it really was an in- incredible i think that was in june it may have been in june or yeah i think it was in early june that was the opening of amnesia okay and um everyone talks about that that party <laughs> and um how incredible that was because we've been building up. We've taken a lot of inspiration from Ibiza and sprinkled all that Ibiza magic into London without the kind of sunshine and the palm trees and um, the open air. So we just, uh, we adapted it into the London model. And um, when we got out there the following summer, it was, it was the summer of love and the scene had then developed in that summer. It was everywhere. It was all over the newspapers. The newspapers were, um, sensationalizing it and um, lock up your daughters and all this and lock up your children and uh, ecstasy airport and all of these like uh, scandalous headlines and trying to single people out but what they actually did was like kids were at work during the week um, and you know they'd read the newspaper and see it on Monday morning they'd see all these like rebellious people at raves and what have you and parties and stuff and the media fueled it it's like, you know, don't go there, stay away. You know, this is it, the work of the devil, but they actually sensationalise it to a degree that, you know, John, who was working on a building site and hating his job, just like, I'm having some of this. <laughs> went, out on the week, went out on the weekend and, like, partied hard. And then, like, a lot of those people, they, they left their jobs. A lot of people did lose, leave their jobs um, because they had an opportunity to do something else in an industry that they wanted to be part of. We created our own industry. The industry we know today was really born out of that time. And a lot of people have made a lot of money from it. <laughs> yeah, uh, like you mentioned, like, John on the building site. I mean, the worst thing you can, you can say to someone of that age is, you know, um, it's dangerous, you shouldn't be doing this, you shouldn't go there. And that's, you know, just the red rag to the bull, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and um, 
maybe they did it intentionally, but it was, you know, kind of, where are your children? You know, at the weekend, are they at these, uh, these raves and unlicensed events and parties? But, you know, it just like, it was that kind of rebellious nature. And, and the pub, the pub started to empty out. People didn't want to go to the pub. They wanted to get out there and dance with thousands of other people, whether it was in, you know, kind of the early clubs or out in fields in raves. And that, that was it. The scene was born. Mm-hmm. And it did spread through this country like wildfire. You know, the raves in Blackburn and everywhere. And Manchester had the Hacienda. So, and Nottingham with the garage. Everything just all came together. Um, Scotland with Street Rave. Uh, it was a incredible incredible time and an incredible feeling within youth culture we changed so much and did you realize at that time that you'd been part of the spark that set that fire ablaze were you kind of proud at that time or was it just something that was just happening no it wasn't something that just happening <laughs> shoom was all about peace love unity and doing your own thing and coming together and um uh, the spirit of my own uh, zest for life and uh, the kind of, the energy that I was projecting into Zoom, the optimism was infectious, and a lot of it came out of that uh, that club. And it was, you know, in Amnesia, it was a little bit more pretentious, I'd say, but there was such a mix of people that you know there was something happening, and people were tuned into it. And let's look back to it: the Berlin Wall was falling, and um, apartheid was crumbling. So all these things combined, it was like, "Hey, the world's changing, and we are changing the world." You know, and we really did believe that we were changing the world, and we were within our own, uh, our own community and our, our own culture, and we did. We changed it. The summer of love, '88. The Berlin Wall coming down, '89. It's the start of a new decade into the '90s, and people kind of look back towards the 90s now and they kind of liken that to the 60s it's almost the last massive youth movement that we've seen yeah I think the late 80s were more akin to the 60s because there was the whole unity and togetherness um, collective consciousness the 90s became the party decade with this the whole foundations for the scene was set over uh, 88 89 and uh, the 90s and then that whole decade that followed was just tremendous, incredible. There was one long party for everyone. It was, you know, the decade, the 90s decade was, it was it was a party decade until the millennium came along and changed everything. <laughs> but, um, you know, it was a great period for music, for fashion, for art, for the sales of records, for the sales of compilation CDs, for artists, for producers, for everybody that was part of this scene. You know, we'd created this uh, new arm of the music industry um, and the compilation albums would sell a million copies, uh, which is, you know, lead, leading artists, um, leading pop or uh, rock artists uh, kind of territory of sales. But the compilation albums came out of the um, early mixtape uh, mm-hmm. business where people would just um, record sets and then there'd be distributors and they'd sell them for a fiver each at Camden Market and um, Notting Hill, uh, Labrook Grove and all over the country for that matter. People would be selling like bootleg tapes and that's how that industry began, the compilation side, compilation um, market began out of those early bootleg tapes yeah to have some of those tapes now or to have something even to play them on when i when i discover a tape in my house now i've got nothing to play it on <laughs> well that's exactly it and i need to get a new cassette deck because i've got hundreds of tapes here that i need to copy over yeah and i'm gonna get them up on my mix cloud page on the uh, mix cloud select uh, site uh, part of the page mm. so a lot of work's going to go into the copying of them and there's a a, a huge library of, of rare tapes 
Um, there is an original Shoom recording from Shoom on the Farm that's up on my Mixcloud page. I think that's got eight or 10,000 um, listens, which is pretty good Amazing. in terms of Mixcloud stats. So yeah. that's my that's my aim with a, a lot of these uh, rare sets that you know, haven't been heard mm. from back in the, you know, the summer of love time through the 90s up to the present. How exciting. Yeah, I mean, to, to, to be able to have that history in that back catalogue and you've got it and just to be able to kind of share that now this is stuff that like you say because before um cds and compilation albums these things were bootleg tapes and they've all perished and all disappeared in the mists of time it's great you can uh get them together and and put them up digitally exactly yeah you know have you listened to any any of them back and um do you are you proud of every single thing or is there anything that makes you kind of cringe or anything like that (laughs) It's the odd one or two, but you know, it's just like you know, kind of get a bit nostalgic when I have listened to some of them, and it just takes you right back in that moment of mm. where you were and um, when that was, and you know, kind of that's the magic of it. Um, and I, I'm a collector. I collect, you know, kind of I've got hoarded cassettes and vinyl and um, memorabilia books. I like to collect things. Mm. Um, I, I think you know, kind of. Um, I think, yeah, that comes from childhood, collecting stamps and things and, you know, kind of cars and football cards and what have you and books and stuff and records. And it just stays with you, doesn't it? I've tried to encourage my son to collect things, but he doesn't seem that interested. But, you know, it's generation now. (laughs) (laughs) It's not that bothered. (laughs) You know, you collect things, they become more valuable over time. And I was trying to get this message across to him. You know, and it's treasure. It's not treasure to everybody. <laughs> no, it's a much more disposable kind of culture now, really, isn't it? Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
Yeah, you mentioned so the 90s kind of being a like party decade and like you obviously participated in that um, with your Love Groove dance party on on BBC Radio 1 uh, moving from Kiss was it 94 that you moved over from Kiss? Yeah, I think yeah, I think it was about 94 that I was on Kiss FM when it uh, became a legal station. Yeah. I held a Saturday night show, uh, show there. Um, I started on Kiss FM as a late night Tuesday night Wednesday morning show at two in the morning um, and then I'd get the night bus home sleep for an hour and then go on to work at 7 30 in the morning oh my gosh. but hey that's how much I wanted to be a radio yeah. DJ so yeah. it was like you know it's only Tuesday night but it was a foot in the door mm. and it and it served me well and I thank Gordon Mack from Kiss FM and he's now uh, the director of My Soul Radio mm-hmm. um, I'm forever grateful for Gordon recognizing that talent and that's Gordon is great at recognizing talent and giving them a platform. And, you know, we have, we celebrate that because, you know, he's, you know, he's, he's a great personality and a great man and has really platformed so many of the, um, DJ and radio legends and stars that we know today. Many of them have come through, uh, Gordon Max, uh, radio stations. And so you started on Kiss when it was an illegal station as well. So what was, what was that like? Were there any really sketchy moments? Did you feel like you were completely anti-establishment and you were locked up in a tower block somewhere broadcasting, or how was how was that? No, it was. It wasn't. Kiss was um, really. It wasn't one of the bandit pirate stations. There were a few about. Mm. There were two or three radio stations at that time, and there was no output apart from. Um, a couple of dance shows on the BBC, one on the BBC with uh, Jeff Young and Robbie Vincent and Greg Edwards on Capital. So um, there wasn't much uh, in terms of dance music output. So the pirate radio, it, it expanded uh, through that period uh, because that's what people wanted to listen to on the radio. Mm-hmm. And um, Kiss was not anti-establishment, that's for sure, because... Kiss uh, ran the, the, their uh, their station in a very responsible way. You know, they wouldn't go breaking into somewhere and then, you know, kind of uh, be at war with other pirate stations, which did go on at the time. Um, and there was the odd occasion where, oh, the DTI are going to get, uh, raid the station. But they'd actually tip Kiss off to say, we're going to take you off air. So um, they would never, uh, you know, kind of arrest any DJs, which did happen at the time. There was a real cat and mouse thing going on. But Gordon run a responsible station, uh, with Tosca Jackson, and um, and it was off air now and then when they take remove the aerial from um, uh, high points in London, the aerials would all be removed, and then the station would go off air for a little bit, and then get some more money together and and put another aerial up. So it was yeah, that was that was the kind of uh, the game that was going on at the time with the um, uh, the uh, the DTI at the time, and it, and it was all part of the fun of it. You know, there was. You know, it was rebellious and it was it was a platform um, for great music. Mm-hmm. And that that was what it was all about. Yeah, I mean, it's a massive thing to actually get the license and, you know, to like you said, all of the talent that was pulled within KISS at that time at hand has gone through KISS. To, to give a platform to all of, of that of that talent is is amazing. You look at, you know, you do some research on the station, even before it became legal, um, the laundry list of well-known names that have all participated in that success it's incredible oh it is yeah and there's mbes um with um is there four 
four, I think four former DJs of Kiss have got MBEs. Yeah. Um, and yeah, Kiss uh, was a pirate for many years and then it had to come off a, of the airwaves for one year before it could um, broadcast on a legal FM bandwidth. Um, and uh, a year was taken out. So all the DJs agreed not to go to any other radio stations and take a year off of the radio while they prepared everything and got all of the um, all, all, everything in place ready to go live and uh, legal. That shows a lot of faith as well in in the station that you would all make that choice as well not to go elsewhere while while that twelve month period went on. Yeah, and everyone wanted to be on the radio playing music, but um, you know everybody was loyal to Kiss and uh, and to Gordon. And that's what happened. So uh, when Kiss came back on the air, everybody was still there that had been there previously under the pirate flag. Mm, yeah. And when you eventually did make that move over to to BBC Radio 1, um, the BBC, it's this huge national well-respected organ. Did you feel that this was the establishment um, giving approval for this sound, this dance music sound that might not have had much coverage like you said before there were only a couple of dance shows or whatever before did you feel like this was the approval and you were uh, the figurehead of that well they didn't like the bbc didn't like acid house that's for sure <laughs> and the rave scene <laughs> they, they were all a p- part of the sensationalism mm-hmm. as well at that time you know ban banning records and what have you but it just made it more popular didn't it so um yeah it was a strange one because i was so um loyal to kiss and i had to leave within a couple of weeks and i wasn't comfortable with that mm. i really wasn't i had a meeting with uh, radio one and i wasn't that comfortable with, with with moving so abruptly rather than uh, three or four months but it was an opportunity and um my um wife stroke manager at the time jenny said you know this is you know this is a natural progression um, because Kiss was only limited to London then but going from London um, uh, radio show to national was a little bit daunting to begin I had to say Um, you know it it wasn't just talking to you know your old core audience in London you're now talking to the whole country so it, it took a bit of time to adjust but yeah I will you know I, I still to this day you know I'm, you know, I'm sorry I had to leave Kiss in such a abrupt way and i think you know it upset gordon at the time but um we're all right now but it, it, you know it, it wasn't too disloyalty it was it was just about a, an opportunity um with radio one that um um matthew bannister had changed the station's output and wanted a station that was more like kiss that was more um more up to date because it wasn't it was it was too too old hat before they poached me, Judge Jules, Giles Peterson and um, Tim Westwood um, and then changed the face of Radio 1 on the weekend. Yeah, it's crazy. You just list off those names and yeah, to, to, to poach all of those guys to change that station sound. Imitation is just a serious form of flattery. Well, exactly. But what it also did, it, it really, um, that period in the 90s, it boom time. And the output of music going national as well, rather than regional radio stations and the output of that over the weekend, it really helped the sales of compilation um, CDs, the sales of um, records, producers, record labels, everything that, you know, part of the industry was helped by the platform of radio. So many great records were broken on on the BBC nationally. Um, but I think if there wasn't that output on, BB, on the BBC at the time, those records may not have been as huge as what they were, even though they were huge in clubs. The radio backed that up to another audience as well. Mm-hmm. And people were buying music 
whether they went to a club or not, they were buying music throughout the 90s. It was a great time for the sales of music. Yeah, and it was even better for Ibiza in a way that that BBC dance music project then went over to to start doing the kind of weekenders on the island and did that realization suddenly think like wow this is you know this is down to 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 me almost in a way did did that feeling come across yeah in a sense i I was never comfortable with those radio one weekend as i had to say it felt a bit like the radio one road show that i've been (laughs) to as a kid in like bogner regis with like their star leading djs Uh, that i I think that's what kind of got in the way with me at times. I was just like, God, this is a bit like the Radio One Roadshow in like kind of Bogner. <laughs> more more palm actually, trees. You know, a lot of people. <laughs> well, a lot. Of, yeah, no, exactly. But a lot of people loved it. And the first one I did, I did behind closed doors. Just didn't want to stand in front of the audience, like you know, kind of on the mic. I was all right in the radio studio, but I just didn't fancy standing there and being the compare, you know? Um, and it took a bit of time to get used to that. So mm. um, eventually I did, I was kind of like standing in front of the audience. But I think for me, one of them was when we did Pasha um, and we were sp- scheduled to do the roof in Pasha and then it got cancelled and we had to drive at top speed over to Cafe Mambo where there was like about, 88,000 people on the beach no exaggerating I don't know the beach was just a sea of people it's like god how many people are on this beach just looking out it was again it was like oh my gosh it's like incredible in that sense Mm. but um you know it was just huge and um I remember that that night as well because Roger Sanchez was playing before me and Pav was playing on percussion, and I was I was actually stressed out because my show had been pulled in Pasha. So last minute, I got to get over there. So I haven't had any time to set up just straight in, uh, you know, kind of on the decks presenting a radio show to thousands of people on the beach. That was hard work. I think that was one of the that was that was a very difficult show. I have to say because of the stress of the the other show being pulled. And do ner- do nerves and stress still kind of play a part when you're playing live now, or are you just a complete seasoned professional? And it's just all very easy. Sometimes stress is unavoidable, but mm. you, you know, uh, let's just say, let's just say there's a technical glitch when you're halfway through a set. You can't get stressed out about it. And it's something I've learned over the years. I mean, younger years might have had a few stressful moments, but it's something you like learn to adapt with, and you just keep your cool. Um, it might be a few seconds or it could be a couple of minutes, but keep your call and you know that it's going, the music will be restored. Mm. So, you know, I just stay calm in those situations, you know, kind of pick up a drink, um, look through the playlist at what's being played, what I can play next or back on the music. Um, stress, I think stress associated with um, DJ and comes from travel. Um, that, can, that can put a lot of pressure on, particularly when flights are late and mm. or delayed and so on. But uh, getting nervous before an event, um, some events, yeah, but generally, you know, it's. I think everyone has a little bit of, um, you know, kind of butterflies and kind of anticipation. It's it's natural, mm. but I don't get like kind of oh, um, give me a tranquilizer to calm my nerves. <laughs> um, I, I I played at um, Shum in Brixton. We did a very large event there within the city live. Um, in um, when was that? That was in November two thousand and nineteen. It was an incredible party, sold out. But um. Um, I didn't want to go out uh, into the audience because uh, lots of friends and everything and it can kind of get overwhelming. So I just went and sat in the dressing room upstairs 
for about 90 minutes, even though I was hosting the event, because I wanted to just solely center my energy, not have any distractions, just sit in, um, in a quiet place before I went out and played that set. And I played a really, really great set. You know, as soon as it was showtime, ready to go down and um, get on the stage. And it's a big venue there. Just get on and do it. But I needed that time upstairs, just be on my own, be removed from everything. And then after, then I was mixing with everyone and went out and, you know, kind of had a dance and said hello to friends and stuff and was talking to people. But before a set, I try to avoid that as much as possible. Yeah. And I think a lot of DJs do, you know, it's just, and the same as musicians, you know, you don't want to be having like a party around you when you're going out there to provide the soundtrack to that. That's just my own point of view and how I, I um, have learned to just produce better sets and be to totally calm and focused on, 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 on the set at hand. Yeah, I mean, the, the number of DJs we've spoken to on this series so far, a common theme is um a travel aspect and just you know getting you down essentially you are working nights um traveling a lot and it you know it's it can kind of grind you down in that sense you know you have a a huge party and the set's great but then afterwards you know you know almost sometimes immediately afterwards you could be on a flight elsewhere and you know it's that kind of come down aspect it's about managing that and being mindful and if you've got a process for that i think it's very important well i think that also comes with experience as well because through the 90s uh you know, I'd go and do my sets and then I'd go and party all day. Uh, most people did. Um, and lots of people partied while they were actually playing sets, but that wasn't really my kind of style. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, uh, you know, kind of in um, the last many, many years, it's, um, let's say I'm playing in Newcastle. I'd be on a train on Sunday morning out of Newcastle at half eight and I may have finished at, at three or four in the morning. So I'll have a couple of hours sleep, get on the train, head back because I like to spend Sunday as, as a day of rest actually you know kind of switching off from everything and having a few hours of respite but I you know I wouldn't give that up for the world I just mm. I you know I I've traveled everywhere and I continue to travel and I'm really missing that right now like most people but I I don't get stressed out about the travel anymore I went through periods of that in the 90s but I don't anymore I'm just you know I'm very grateful if I get booked you know to play in New York or wherever it, Australia wherever it may be or Asia uh, I'm immensely grateful that 30 odd years I'm here uh, still appreciated and still doing what I love and uh, that passion for music and that's not to be taken for granted for one minute because when it is taken away and I stepped away for it for two years you never know what it's got what you've got until it's gone that, that you know kind of that old saying and it, that is so true it really is so true. And so when I hear DJs moaning about like, oh, well, you know, you know, kind of I had to do this and I had to do that. Yeah, well, cut the schedule back a bit. You know, that's down with the you know, kind of the agents and it's your choice at the end of the day. If you're taking six gigs back to back, yeah, the money's great and everything, but it, it does take its toll. Hmm. But, you know, kind of there's no point moaning about it. It's just, you know, just cut back what you're doing. It's not going to go away. You're yeah. good at what you do. And, you know, it's not like you're here today and gone tomorrow. I think that's the fear with a lot of people as well. But right now we're all missing this industry and mm. the, we're going out clubbing, celebrating life, playing music, missing it terribly. Yeah. And, you know, we can talk about the, we're obviously kind of 
in the lockdown period right now it's kind of coming towards the end but you know businesses are opening up but things like nightclubs and that nighttime industry um they're still closed and you know you've got all of the not only the djs not only the clubs and the festivals but everything that's kind of in a domino effect in and around all of those events and absolutely yeah Yeah. i mean you know and the government have been quite they haven't really been overt in what they're going to be doing with funding specifically about that sector of uh, of the economy and you've been doing some great work with um let us dance and forgotten limited um you know i just want to get your feelings on how important it is do you think that you know these things survived after this period well and save nightlife i campaign for also and it's importance campaign because uh, we've slipped through the cracks. Um, this uh, everything closed down in, in March, and um, it's been really challenging for many, many people. You know, we don't have the uh, advantage of being um, at home, getting on with DIY, drinking, you know, kind of uh, beer and having barbecues in the garden, and like having a bit of an extended break and catching up on all those things. You know, it's been bloody tough for a lot of people in in this industry and the supporting industries in the nighttime economy. Um, and the recent arts and culture uh, funding package is not incorporating the nightclub sector and the festival sector, which is uh, £66 billion pounds, uh, contribution to the UK economy annually um, and uh, 3 million people employed. And right now, many people are unemployed, including myself right now. Um, and that's why I rigorously campaign for these campaigns, because we don't have any... Um, meaningful support. We do not have a, 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 an end date in sight, which is very, very unsettling and uncertain for so many people and so, you know, so many businesses that have been built up over years and not turning huge profits, but, you know, kind of you know, people's passion and their lives that have gone into businesses and venues and festivals and uh, you know the investment they make year on year to, to business and and for people to enjoy entertainment and going out and dancing and listening to music you know all of these things considered and, and uh, bars and restaurants that have music in and whether that be live music or djs all of these things you know we can't dance at the moment it's ludicrous this like block on dancing what is that all about yeah okay yeah there are restrictions there's health and safety compliance but come on you know we all we all need to dance it's important to dance to to release those positive good endorphins it's it, it's a primal need of most human beings whatever age you are to dance and we are missing that and it's it's causing a lot of it's causing a lot of anxiety for people it, mental health um, statistics are rising it's a challenge day to day for a lot of people um and it, you know there's this other thing oh we'll retrain for something else well we don't want to retrain for something else which is also not really an option because retraining can take months as well mm. and there's no guarantee of work so yeah we have built up an industry here that is um world renowned and has been exported um across the globe and uh, we produce uh, so many stars and 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 ta- new talent from from this country and that has to be preserved and supported the way that the arts and the opera and the theater is is being supported or there's proposals for grassroots venues have got to be supported every town needs a grassroots 
um, venue for mm -hmm. live music and for DJs and for nightclubs. It's very, very important. It's mm -hmm. part of the fabric of society. And this is, this is, it's, it's really, it, it's becoming a battle right now. Um, and people have to become aware that um, if there isn't any support, then th your local club or your local live music venue could be gone. Mm. That we're already seeing um, venues um, closing, and it's 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 incredibly sad um, uh, uh, that people have put blood, sweat, and tears into businesses, and they've had to close. There were two venues in, who, which closed in Manchester in the past week, and a venue in Hull. There are venues in London, all over the country, um, and this has got to be stopped. It's you know that we have to get support for our industry and anybody who likes going out listening to live music or dancing to DJs. You've got to support these campaigns as well because well, you know your entertainment and your leisure time is going to be impacted, and your local club, your local uh, place where you see bands. It very well could not be there if there is no affirmative government support and action that is put in place with immediate effect. It's a very precarious position the industry is in right now. Mm. And it's important that we support the campaigns. Uh, Forgotten Limited is for freelancers in the creative industries in uh, across the creative industries and small limited company directors who do not qualify for any meaningful government support, cannot get bounce back loans. Um, they're not in the uh, furlough position. So um, those people are the backbone of the creative industries and the music industry. Um, the nighttime economy is, is uh, the campaign for the nighttime economy and festivals, clubs, theatre, hospitality, save nightlife. It's a very important campaign also and a new campaign has been launched on the 26th of july which is uh, called let us dance and this can be found on the ntia.co.uk website and this needs support across the whole of the industry um from uh, uh from the established artists and seasoned clubbers to the new generation to the new talents uh, to new venue owners, to existing venue, everybody who works in this industry needs to support this campaign, the Let Us Dance campaign. It's hashtag Let Us Dance. Please get involved. Write to your MP. It's very important that you write to your local MP. There's a letter template. You don't have to write your own letter. It's on the site at NTIA. It takes two minutes to send that to your MP. The more letters that go through to MPs, the more pressure is put upon the MPs, then the that that will be um, discussed in Parliament. And we need to apply that pressure right now because our industry is in grave danger and our scene of not returning to what it ever was. And we have spent years of passion building up this incredible music scene that we have here in the UK. And um, please support those campaigns. Very, very, very important. Amazing, amazing call to arms. I love it. And yeah, we'll definitely um, be promoting all of those things on, on our Instagram feed and, and supporting that as well and making sure that our audience are aware of all of that. No problem. Um, and I mean, during this period, like some of that, you know, 
businesses have kind of tried to pivot a little and maybe been doing things, moving things online and people are still being having access to kind of DJs and music. And, you know, I'm thinking of Defected Virtual Festival and those types of things. What are your thoughts on kind of doing things virtually? Have you enjoyed anything that you've done or is it just a means to an end and just to keep people um, dancing in their living rooms? Well, I wasn't able to um, contribute to any live streams when uh, it was in the uh, fall quarantining i don't like to use that other word (laughs) um when we couldn't go out anywhere and um when it was very restrictive so uh, i have done a couple of live streams and yeah though they were okay one was a transatlantic um trans uh uh atlantic um uh, age thing as well i was playing uh, a set and a 15 year old hip-hop dj from atlanta was playing the set on the same live stream, which is really cool because it brought a lot of people together from all walks and ages of life, you know, from the US and from the UK as well. People were on a Zoom um, live stream, so that was cool. But the future isn't with live streaming. Yes, it's part of it. We need to get back out and we need to be uh, able to go out and enjoy concerts and festivals and club nights again. That is the essence of it all. Um, yeah, people, everyone's, uh, you know, tried to adapt somehow, some way. Defected are a leading company. So, you know, they have a massive fan base. They have a massive, massive streaming fan base as well. So, uh, you know, as a company uh, and the uh, the records they release, they're, yeah, they're a very strong company. But not all companies are like Defected mm-hmm. uh, and don't have that massive fan base that they have. So um, they've done a lot of good things for charity and a lot of the live streams have. But at the end of the day, also, people do need to make a living. Mm. People who are on universal credit, for example, £410 a month, that doesn't even pay people's bills. Mm. So people have got in the industry have got to start making a living. Uh, Village Underground, for example, in London, leading London club in Shoreditch, um, they've adapted and they've turned the club in for, as a temporary measure into a bicycle storage. It's just adapting to get some revenues to help the, the overheads and, and the cost of the building. Yeah. Um, and hopefully that club will reopen and, and get back to its former glory. But yeah, it's just an example of how people have had to adapt. Um, and I just pray that we do not lose all these great clubs that, um, that we support and they, you know, they support us as DJs, um, as clubbers. They're places, you know, where we go out clubbing, dancing, and having a great time and meeting new friends. Um, they've got to be supported. So, um, ways of adapting. I've, I've created a YouTube uh, channel which I've been working on over this um, this period of um, being out of the music uh, scene as such. Uh, and th- we we have a series of interviews with. Um, um, uh, very interesting people under the uh, YouTube title uh, Surviving 2020 and the first interview is with Michael Kill of the Nighttime Industries Association this week along with Georgina Broadhurst from Forgotten Limited uh, and those uh, interviews will be live under Surviving 2020 I've also uh, put a series of Love Groove Dance Party LGDP radio podcast together um, during this um quarantining and um so there's five episodes of that that are on uh mixcloud i'll be producing a new show this weekend Uh, and it's good to be back doing a radio show it really is (laughs) well that was your first love wasn't it really it's brought a lot of pleasure to people as well i've had some great feedback particularly when everyone could not go out anywhere and was just contained to their, their their homes 
um, it's kept a lot of people company, and that's yeah. the power of radio. Mm-hmm. Uh, the live stream is more visual, but with radio, there's a lot more um, with the imagination of the listener. Uh, what does the radio presenter look like? Where are they broadcasting from? All these things combined, you know, um, and that, uh, and you're talking one to one, and that's the perception that I'm listening to this radio show, and actually, you know, I'm I'm having a you know a, a, a couple of hours with this person, this DJ or whatever DJ that is. It's just me and me and him or her, mm-hmm. and that's the that's the imaginative side of radio, which is really important. Um, so uh, the, the the final question that we always ask all of our guests is we are we are house culture and you are one of the founding fathers the originators of this house music scene and this whole culture within the UK and the world that has been created you've played a huge part in that what does the scene mean to you personally and what it what has it brought you in your life well it's brought me a lot of joy and a lot of other people as well um i just love playing music and um finding new music and um and playing that i I, you know i play classics events as well but i have to say that new music is is where i um my real passion is um and that's what i continue to do uh just playing good new music um celebrating life on the dance floor or behind the decks i like to dance still um don't get the opportunity as much as i used to to go out and get on the floor but um yeah i'm still you know i I still get out get out there and have a dance as well it's important Mm -hmm. um and to listen to other people playing but i'm 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 um, eternally proud that um uh, in the whole sequence of the events of the development of uh, house music and the electronic music scene, um, the role um, that I played back then um, in the inception years here in the UK. And today I'm equally as passionate about um, the music and the scene and long may that continue. Perfect. That's the great place to end on, I think. Yeah, I've enjoyed being with you. It's been a great interview and um, love the questions. And uh, I think you've uh, you've got the best out of me this morning. (laughs) House culture. How awesome was that? One of the original originators of house music in the UK and the world right here on the House Culture Podcast. I want to personally thank Danny for not only taking part, but for putting up with my incessant badgering for an interview. We got there in the end, not even a worldwide pandemic was going to stop us. And I hope you enjoyed listening and learning about Mr. Rampling's journey through the dance music scene. You also heard Danny mention Gordon Mack, the founder of KISS FM, when he was talking about his early days on Pirate Radio. And if you want to hear Gordon's story about the creation of that particular brand, you can listen to our interview with the man himself in our first series of podcasts. It's also not often we get these released so quickly. This one was only recorded the other week. However, as you heard, there is some urgent business for us all to attend to in terms of helping out artists, venues, staff and employees. If you're listening to this podcast, you must definitely participate in activities that are going to be directly affected by the pandemic. And we all need to take immediate action in order for these venues and DJs to still be there for us once this is all over. 
like Danny said. Follow the hashtag Let Us Dance. Go to the Nighttime Industries Association website at ntia.co.uk for more info and write to your local MP asking them to support the nighttime economy. Without it, dance floors will die. But if you want to provide some tunage for your own private dance floor, you can check out our playlist on Spotify. Just search for House Culture Perfect Playlist and there you'll find a whole smorgasbord of sounds chosen by all of our podcast guests that cover every aspect of dance music. Now we didn't get time in our chat to go through Danny's submissions, however I have them here and he has chosen. For his catalyst, let the music use you by the Night Writers, an epic Frankie Knuckles production who was also a catalyst for Smoking Joe. His floor filler is the stunning Colch remix of Frankie Knuckles' Your Love, featuring the vocals of Jamie Principal and the instrumentation of the Heritage Orchestra, conducted by Jules Buckley. His Sunsetter is his production alongside Balearic legend Phil Meissen's alter ego Cantoma. It's called Claudio's Theme and it's an absolute stunner. If you haven't heard any of Phil Meissen's Cantoma stuff, get yourself down that rabbit hole ASAP. Danny's Tearjerker is a track that has also been favourited by Tall Paul. It's another production from the godfather of house music, Frankie Knuckles. It's his track, The Whistle Song. And for his final track, the one Danny wants to send you all home humming, is the brutally beautiful Alberto Ruiz 80 Monster remix of Solstice by Monica Cruz meets Pig and Dan. Once you've tucked into all of those tunes, please help support the House Culture Podcast by loving, liking, tweeting, sharing and rating or reviewing us on Apple. This last bit is really important. It does make a difference. If you say something really nice, we'll give you a mention on the next episode. Which is why this time around I'm giving a shout out to the person who reviewed us on Apple. goes by the name of The Gloon. They just listened to our interview with Norman Cook. Thought it was a great natural conversation with some great insights into why Norman became such an icon. Thanks for taking the time to put that in writing to us. And I hope you're enjoying listening to the other icons within our back catalogue of episodes, including this one. And finally, don't forget, if you want to get in touch with me, Matt Rouse, you can contact me directly on Instagram at DJMattRouse. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and see you next time. House Culture. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.